The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Voters deliver a message to Trump. This is Thursday, November 9th, 2017. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through my links for Target.com, my other sponsors, and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The resistance went to the polls day before yesterday and did what so many of its members failed to do on November 8th last year. They voted, and they did so enthusiastically with the biggest turnout in 20 years And they won, beating back Republicans across the country in a clear message to Donald Trump that his days are numbered, if not already over. Democratic victories were widespread on Tuesday as voters rejected Trump by rejecting politicians like him. Because Trump the man is too risky to bring into a statewide campaign, Republicans ran for governor in two states, hoping to cash in on the anger that got Trump elected without bringing in Trump himself. But voters had apparently gotten that anger out of their systems last fall, or maybe they now see what their anger has wrought. In any event, two Republicans running for governor in New Jersey and Virginia ran on Trump issues, immigration, crime, kneeling football players and Confederate statues, the fear issues, the divisive issues. And voters said no. In Virginia, Republican Ed Gillespie lost to Democrat Ralph Northam by nine points, the biggest Democratic victory margin in a Virginia governor's race in decades. The governor's mansion in Virginia will continue to be occupied by a Democrat. Once a red state, Virginia has apparently completed its transition to blue, partly thanks to the backlash against Trump. Virginia Democrats won the races for governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general. They picked up a string of seats in the state legislature, perhaps winning control of that body. Also defeated a state senator who's pushed for vaginal ultrasounds for women seeking abortions. Defeated a Virginia lawmaker who'd sponsored an anti-transgender bathroom bill. He was defeated by a transgender candidate. In New Jersey, with wildly unpopular Chris Christie on his way out, another Republican used Trumpian tactics and also lost by 13 points. In New York City, the very Democratic Bill de Blasio easily defeated his Republican challenger, and he did it with the help of Bernie Sanders. NYC went very progressive this time. Sanders and socialist-backed candidates won a dozen races across the country, indicating there might not be such a thing as too progressive for Democratic voters these days. Exit polls across the country showed that Tuesday's vote was, in fact, inspired by a disdain for Donald Trump. One-third of the people voting that day said they were voting to push back against Trump and Trumpism. It was suburbanites who pushed Democrats over the top. But black voters played a big role, also turning out in record numbers. Women played a huge role, maybe the deciding role, in what would be the best day for Democrats since the re-election of Obama in 2012. Women didn't just vote. They ran and won of the 14 seats Democrats took from Republicans in the Virginia State House, 10 of them now go to women. Democrats took control of the state Senate in Washington State. In Maine, voters rebuked their Republican governor by voting to expand Medicaid under Obamacare, an idea their governor has repeatedly rejected, vetoing it five times when passed by that state's legislature. That voter message was directed to Republican lawmakers everywhere about their attacks on the Affordable Care Act. In many cases, for the very first time, Democrats were winning because of Obamacare instead of in spite of it. 
The exit polls show health care was a big factor in Tuesday's vote. There were Democratic victories Tuesday in Republican places. The Dems picked up three seats in the Georgia legislature. Republican mayors lost in North Carolina, New Hampshire, and in St. Petersburg, Florida. Many have called it a Democratic sweep. One political observer called it a tidal wave. Voters in the U.S. have delivered a message, loud and clear. A message that Trump and those like him must go. A message Republicans are hearing, loud and clear, as they prepare for the midterm congressional elections that are now less than a year away. This week's Democratic sweep is the subject of this week's commentary from Bob Seska, later in the podcast. A person living in London is every bit as likely to be robbed as a person in New York City. But the American is 54 times more likely to die in that robbery. Why the discrepancy? Guns. Lots and lots of guns. There are only three nations on this planet where it's believed that people have an inherent right to own guns. Guatemala, Mexico, and the U.S. No country on the planet has more than 46 million guns, except for the U.S., which has 270 million guns. The U.S. is number one in guns, with nearly six times as many guns as second-place India. Only about 4.5% of the world's people live here, but we own 42% of the world's guns. Of the mass shootings that take place in countries around the world, a third of them happen here. We're also number one in mass shootings. And studies show there is a correlation between the number of guns and the number of mass shootings. Violent video games? No effect. The study shows gun violence is the same in countries without them as in countries with them. Mental health? Not usually. The U.S. spends about the same on that per capita as all other wealthy countries, and one study shows only 4% of the gun deaths in this country are committed by someone who's clinically or legally mentally ill. When we blame mass killings on mental illness, we take the focus off guns and shift it to a problem that seems unsolvable. You cannot outlaw mental illness. And that kind of thinking lifts the responsibility off lawmakers who were elected with help from the National Rifle Association. Mental illness was the go-to when Trump again declared it too early to talk about guns after the latest mass shooting. Trump said it wasn't a gun situation anyway, so much as a mental health problem. He had no way of knowing that at the time, but as it turns out, he's right in this case. The Texas killer had spent time in a psychiatric hospital and even escaped briefly, after he had been caught sneaking guns into Holloman Air Base, where he had been assigned and where he was ultimately imprisoned. But it was Trump whose first bill signing made it easier for the legally mentally ill to buy guns. When that was pointed out by journalists, Trump tried a different approach to keep the door closed on a gun debate. Trump argued that were it not for a citizen with a gun, the Texas gunman would have killed many more people. In South Korea, Trump was asked if he would consider the same kind of extreme vetting for gun buyers as he demands from immigrants. Instead of having 26 dead, exaggerated Trump, you'd have hundreds more dead. So that's the way I feel about it, said Trump, adding, not going to help. Just as he was when he signed the Guns for Mentally Ill Act, Trump was towing the NRA line, which is the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Trump's not alone. About half the people of the U.S. agree with him. Trump likes vetting immigrants, but not gun buyers. Background checks shouldn't be a problem, however, if the guy buying a gun is, in fact, a good guy. Of course, it helps when the system works. 
We now know it was the United States Air Force that dropped the ball in keeping the Texas shooter from getting a gun after he'd been convicted of threatening his wife and her baby boy who got a fractured skull when the threats turned to violence. Despite his year in military prison for domestic violence and his bad conduct discharge, Devin Kelly bought guns passing easily through the background checks. The Air Force had failed to notify the FBI of Kelly's military conviction. If the FBI had been notified, Kelly would not have been able to buy or own a gun. As it was, he had a license and guns. Police say what Kelly did with those guns Sunday was an act of domestic violence against his ex-wife's grandmother. This week, the House in Washington voted to give veterans access to mental health care, even if they had dishonorable or bad conduct discharges. Normally, those discharged less than honorably have been denied veterans' health services. It might be wise to make an exception for mental health, even if it accounts for only a single-digit percentage of all the mass shootings. And then there's the type of gun used, the kind of assault rifle that's been a part of the last two record-breaking massacres, the AR-15 and variations of it inspired by the M-16s used in the Vietnam War. The Texas shooter used a Luger AR-556, 15 loaded magazines, and fired some 450 shots into that church. Assault rifles of this type are now the number one selling gun in America with over 10 million sold each capable of firing, for example, 450 shots. Fourteen of the dead were children, one just 17 months old. Quoting from someone who doesn't have a gun in this fight, a British journalist, Sandy Hook marked the end of the U.S. gun control debate. Once America decided that killing children was bearable, it was over. Elsewhere in Texas, a judge is facing two felony charges for his road rage with guns. Corpus Christi Judge Guy Williams, at 67 years of age, allegedly tried to run another car off the road and then aimed a gun at the people inside that car. He's been ordered to surrender all of his guns until after the trial that starts in March of next year. This week marks the start of a new election year, the congressional midterms, and in choosing their representatives, more than 85% of us factor the candidate's stand on gun control into our votes. But fewer than one in four of us say we'd only vote for the one with whom we agree, and only one in ten of us would choose a candidate based only on their gun stance. A new Gallup poll says gun control has become more of an issue for voters than it has been in previous years. It also shows that Republicans are three times more likely to own guns than Democrats. Trump's attempts to strangle and kill the Affordable Care Act may not be working, after a year of Obamacare bashing and repeal efforts by a Republican-controlled House, Senate, and White House, the ACA remains the law of the land, albeit handicapped by Trump's executive orders. So would you expect fewer people to sign up this year after a year on shaky ground? It's what worried Democrats expected, but it's not happening. While 100,000 of us signed up for health insurance through the federal marketplace on the first day of open enrollment last year, more than twice that many people signed up on opening day this year. The number of visits to that website was up by a third over last year on opening day. And the numbers are probably actually higher than that since these don't factor in the 15 states that run their own marketplace websites. People signed up at a record pace despite Trump slashing the budget for advertising, outreach, and customer assistance. 
They may have rushed to sign up if they'd heard that enrollment would close six weeks earlier this year under Trump. President Obama released a video recently in which he urged Americans to sign up for whatever reasons they did. After the hurricanes that left many people with no place to work, unemployment fell to a 17-year low last month, and employers added 261,000 new jobs, nearly half of them in the leisure and hospitality industry, which had let that many people go the month before because of the hurricanes. But 33,000 new jobs appeared in healthcare and 24,000 in manufacturing. Unemployment now stands at 4.1% the lowest it's been since before the recession. While Trump and others continue to call the Russia investigation a witch hunt and fake news, a solid majority of Americans approve of Robert Mueller's work so far. More than twice as many approve of the special prosecutor than disapprove, according to a Washington Post-ABC News poll. That includes not only the vast majority of Democrats, but a solid majority of independent voters. Republicans still cling to the guy. But it appears Trump is convincing very few people with his attacks on the investigation. So far, the country split down the middle on the likelihood that Trump committed a crime. But just over half of us think the indictments of Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, and George Papadopoulos are signs there is something to see here. The poll shows most of us doubt there is solid evidence so far in the Russia investigation. But by this poll, it's clear Americans want Mueller to keep looking. So who's next? to be indicted. Sources tell NBC News Mueller has enough evidence now to file charges against Mike Flynn, Trump's first national security advisor. Mueller's investigators are currently interviewing several witnesses to better understand the lobbying firm that Flynn ran with his son, Michael G. Flynn. They want evidence Flynn may have lied to federal agents about his overseas contacts. Spoiler alert, he did. They want to know if there was money laundering. And Mueller's team wants to know if Flynn took millions of dollars to help kidnap, here in the U.S., a harsh critic of the president of Turkey. General Flynn's son accompanied him as the elder Flynn traveled to campaign for Trump, and that son is also a target of the Mueller probe, which reportedly deeply concerns Michael Flynn, the senior. If General Flynn wanted to spare his son from this, it might be helpful for him to also become a witness for the prosecution. The senior Flynn has little chance of escaping some serious charges if or when that happens. Flynn then becomes the first Trump administration official to be charged in the Russia probe. The first officials of the Trump campaign have already been charged. America wants Mueller to keep looking. Mueller's other targets, North Korea and the latest in the battle against climate change after this. Henceforth. This free news podcast gets a little commission when you get and use a Target red card through the links at buzzburbank.com. And you get an extra 5% savings in-store and online at target.com. You'll get free, fast delivery on most items or pick them up at the store. If you like, subscribe to the things you buy regularly and have them arrive on your schedule. With a Target red card, you get 60 days to return most items instead of just 30 you'll save an additional 5% on iTunes gift cards. In-store, you can stack your red card savings with coupons and other discounts and save 5% at the in-store Starbucks. Year-round, you'll get early access to new products and early access to sales, plus a 10% coupon every year on your red card anniversary. There are a lot of reasons to get a Target red card through my link, including 
It helps pay the bills to distribute this podcast. Thank you for clicking and bookmarking the target links at buzzburbank.com and for supporting this program through all my sponsors, as well as through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Robert Mueller is also pouring over documents turned over to him by Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Mueller's prosecutors want to know everything about Trump's decision to fire FBI Director James Comey as they investigate a possible obstruction of justice case against the president and others. They want to know about the statement of innocence that Trump released regarding his son, Don Jr., after news of that June 16th meeting with Russians in Trump Tower. By investigating the circumstances surrounding Comey's firing, Mueller makes it clear he is now investigating not just the Trump campaign, but the Trump administration and some of the decisions that it's made. Kushner is not yet a target of the Mueller investigation, but many believe Kushner played a big role in his father-in-law's decision to fire James Comey. Also on the radar of investigators, Carter Page, a foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign. And during that campaign, in July, at the height of that campaign, Carter Page flew to Moscow. When he returned, he sent an email to at least one other Trump campaign aide about the things he learned after meeting with Russian government officials, including at least one senior Russian official. That email was read aloud to the House Intelligence Committee last week behind closed doors during six hours of testimony by Carter Page. Special counsel Robert Mueller was light years ahead of the lawmakers on that committee. Earlier this year, the FBI interviewed Carter Page as part of a counterintelligence investigation, and more recently, Page testified for Mueller's grand jury. But it was in that closed-door testimony for House investigators that Page said he talked about his trip to Russia with Jeff Sessions. And it was there that now Attorney General Jeff Sessions was caught in another lie. In June, Sessions swore under oath he didn't know of any conversations between anyone connected to the Trump campaign and Russians about interference with that campaign. On several statements, the nation's top law enforcement officer may be facing multiple charges of perjury. At the very least, he'll be called back for more questions on Capitol Hill. Democratic Senator Al Franken is among those leading the charge to drag Sessions back to the Hill, but Republican Lindsey Graham is right there with Franken, saying on Fox News, Jeff, you need to tell us everything you know about Russia. And so Trump's attorney general will face his former colleagues once again next week to answer the latest round of questions, and this time might be a lot scarier for Sessions. Ultimately, this could give Trump reason to fire Jeff Sessions and replace him with an attorney general who isn't recused from the Russia investigation. It was in March of last year that campaign aide George Papadopoulos piped in about his Russia connections at a meeting involving Donald Trump, Jeff Sessions, and others. Sessions, at the time, shot down the suggestion hard and instructed everyone not to talk about it. Even if Sessions opposed a campaign relationship with Russia, it appears he would have remembered that when he told House investigators he knew of no one in the campaign who'd spoken with Russians about the campaign, Trump reportedly at that meeting listened with interest as Sessions shot down Papadopoulos's Russia deal. Before leaving for Asia, Trump told reporters, I don't remember much about the meeting. It was a very unimportant meeting. It took place a long time. Don't remember much about it. The week before, Trump had bragged to reporters, I have one of the great memories of all time. I went to an Ivy League college. I was a nice student. I did very well. I'm a very intelligent person. 
It was in February of this year that Trump made it clear he knew of no one in his campaign who had been talking with Russians during the campaign and the transition. So far, we know of at least nine. Trump's former business partner, Michael Cohen, and campaign advisor J.D. Gordon, along with Manafort, Papadopoulos, Carter Page, Jeff Sessions, Mike Flynn, and, of course, Don Jr. and Jared Kushner. Each of these nine men were part of Trump's circle and each had contacts with Russians during the campaign, the transition, or both. America wants Mueller to keep looking. Mueller's search also appears to extend into Congress. Federal complaints have been filed against Ed Royce and Dana Rohrabacher. Ed Royce is an Ohio Republican who is now quite powerful now that he heads the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And Dana Rohrabacher, a California Republican, long known for his strong ties to Russia. Rohrabacher and Royce are accused of accepting illegal campaign donations linked to Paul Manafort and his pro-Russian employers in Ukraine. A complaint against them has been filed with the Justice Department and the House Ethics Committee. DOJ has turned that complaint over to Bob Mueller. And a footnote about Sam Clovis, the national co-chair of the Trump campaign, and briefly, Trump's choice to serve as the top scientist at the Agriculture Department. Besides having no experience in science or agriculture, it was Clovis who encouraged campaign aide George Papadopoulos to travel to Russia and congratulated Papadopoulos on his, quote, great work. It was Clovis who had heard from an excited Papadopoulos about a meeting with people who had dirt on Hillary Clinton, including, quote, thousands of emails. It's evidence the co-chair of the Trump campaign knew about an offer of material stolen by Russians. A source tells ABC News, quote, the White House was surprised to learn Mr. Clovis had been contacted by the special counsel. Normally, White House staff let the president's lawyers know about interviews with Robert Mueller. Clovis hadn't mentioned his before or after. The White House heard it on the news. But no one knows more about the day-to-day life of Donald Trump than the man who's been his bodyguard since before Celebrity Apprentice. Since 1999, former New York City cop Keith Schiller was, for a while, the first face Trump saw each morning and one of the last each night when Schiller served as Trump's head of Oval Office Operations. Schiller has been as much of a friend and confidant for Trump as he's been security muscle. Schiller will be questioned next week by the House Intelligence Committee to ask about the Miss Universe trip that Trump took to Moscow four years ago. It was that visit in which Trump, according to the Steele dossier, engaged some Russian hookers to entertain him. Schiller may also be asked about the firing of James Comey since Schiller was the guy who personally handed Comey his termination letter. This week, we learned that Trump's Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, was still invested in a shipping firm tied to Vladimir Putin's son-in-law. That shipping firm earns millions of dollars a year shipping natural gas for a huge and Putin-connected oil company. Ross has remained an investor in that company, even with Trump's America First campaign and the sanctions against that Russian oil company. Russia's tentacles have spread far and wide, becoming intertwined in the United States political process. The Associated Press this week published the digital hit list of Russian hackers. Turns out they wanted more than just Clinton's emails. The hit list includes thousands of targets, including American defense contractors. But the targets are worldwide, the emails of Ukraine's military officers and anyone who opposes the Putin government. The Russian hackers' targets are located in 116 countries 
with most of them here in the U.S. It is the clearest evidence so far that despite Putin's denials, the hackers were working for the Russian government. That evidence, this hit list, was found by a cybersecurity firm after one of the hacker groups accidentally exposed part of its phishing operation. Russia didn't just use social media to reach millions of voters. It may have reached deep inside the social media companies themselves. The Sunday New York Times dropped a bona fide bombshell when it reported that a Russian billionaire had not only invested in both Facebook and Twitter, he had invested hundreds of millions of dollars in them. This billionaire, Yuri Milner, got his money for those investments from a bank controlled by the Russian government. He is now a major shareholder in both Facebook and Twitter. Congressional investigators have been repeatedly frustrated with what seems like foot-dragging by the lawyers for those two big social media companies that have that same big Russian investor. The news of the billionaire Russian investor will not make the lawmakers any happier. Donald Trump appears frustrated as well with an unsettling and unprecedented attack on the U.S. justice system. Post-Watergate presidents have mostly avoided such attacks on a co-equal branch of government, but the norms that once defined presidents have fallen away under Trump, at least for the time being. Before leaving on his Asian trip, Trump repeatedly called on the FBI and the Justice Department to investigate Clinton and the Democrats. Post-Watergate presidents have mostly avoided interfering with the Justice Department's work. The Justice Department has remained virtually independent of the president, but Trump doesn't like that. He told a conservative radio show, you know, the saddest thing is because I am president of the United States, I'm not supposed to be involved with the Justice Department or the FBI. To which Trump added, I'm not supposed to be doing the kind of things I would love to be doing, and I am very frustrated by it. At some point, said Trump, maybe we're all going to have to have it out. Late last week, Trump called our judicial system a joke and a laughingstock. He even went after the military justice system, calling a court-martial decision a complete and total disgrace. It was Trump who'd fired James Comey and is now pressuring the FBI and the DOJ to investigate Clinton. In the recent past, Trump has slammed both justice and the FBI for not protecting him from the Russia investigation. It was Trump who berated the Attorney General of the United States for recusing himself from the Russia investigation. Recently, Trump's tweeted that the New York terror suspect should, in all caps, get the death penalty, which will interfere with the prosecution of that suspect. Trump did prejudice the Bo Bergdahl case after calling the former sergeant a dirty, rotten traitor who should also be executed. The judge in Bergdahl's case says he considered Trump's prejudicial statements in giving the convicted deserter a lighter sentence that didn't even include prison time beyond what Bergdahl has already served. Presidents don't usually interfere in criminal or military cases. This one does. And as unprecedented as Trump's behavior is, just as noteworthy is the pushback from investigators, prosecutors, judges, and juries who either ignore or do the opposite of what Trump may be demanding. Still, Trump forges ahead, demanding again and again that his political adversaries be investigated. For a while, Trump threatened to send the New York terror suspect to Guantanamo. He'd promised to fill that military prison with bad dudes. Later, perhaps after learning he doesn't have that authority, Trump would back down, saying military justice is much slower than the federal court system. 
This is not the first time Trump's threatened Guantanamo for a suspect and didn't deliver. So far, Trump's doing the same thing as the president before him, the one who tried but failed to close Gitmo. Like Obama, Trump is now turning those prisoners over to the civilian justice system, the one he also called a joke. Donald J. Trump is now a president under siege from all directions, the prosecutors, the press, the public, and past presidents. In a new book about them both, former presidents George Herbert Walker Bush and George W. Bush slammed Trump. The elder Bush called the current president a blowhard, adding, I don't like him. The younger Bush added, the guy doesn't know what it means to be president. They are the first former presidents to speak of Trump so directly and so harshly. The book is called The Last Republicans. On their last day of work, a rogue Twitter customer support employee deleted Trump's account. For 11 glorious minutes after the sabotage had been discovered and reversed, Trump couldn't have tweeted if he wanted to. Twitter has consistently refused to ban Trump's account or even suspend it, despite numerous violations by him of Twitter's policies. The resistance is not isolated. This week's Trump-Russia segment began with a public opinion poll, and it will now end with another. This Washington Post-ABC News poll shows that Trump has the highest disapproval rating of any U.S. president in the past 70 years. Not only do nearly 6 in 10 Americans disapprove of Trump, 50% say they strongly disapprove. The numbers show voters were skeptical of Trump by the time he swore the oath in January. Pollsters say these latest numbers show Trump's fallen short of even those low expectations. And an even newer CNN poll has nearly identical numbers. So it was with this baggage that Trump left for a 12-day tour of Asia to talk trade and North Korea. The trip began with a stop in Hawaii, where Trump played golf before continuing on to Japan, South Korea, China, and Vietnam. And the morning Trump was golfing, and Americans on the continent were sleeping in, Robert Mueller was in a suit and tie, briefcase in hand, headed to work at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. When it was Rex Tillerson's idea to coax North Korea into sitting down for talks with the U.S., Trump told Tillerson he was wasting his time, that talking hadn't and wouldn't do any good. Trump was in full fire-and-fury mode at the time, convinced that threats of annihilation were the way to go. And then suddenly, this week, Trump said talks with North Korea are a good idea. In Japan, Trump urged the North Korean government to come to the table and make a deal, those are quotes. China reacted very favorably to Trump's offer, urging both sides to have those talks. But when he got to South Korea, Trump was talking tough again, warning North Korea not to make a, quote, fatal miscalculation. Don't try us, he said, after putting in a plug for his golf course. The head of a South Korean think tank says North Korea is highly likely to take Trump's address as a declaration of war. Trump's immigration purge continues. Over the past week, Trump's State Department said it would drop deportation protection for 300,000 people from Haiti and Central America. A third of a million people will soon be eligible for deportation under that order. The Trump administration has also given 2,500 Nicaraguans 14 months to get out of the U.S. The TSA, meanwhile, is promising new airport screening measures after a scathing report on the agency's weak performance. Homeland Security testers had been able to get weapons replicas 
through that TSA screening 95% of the time. Congress was not happy to hear that the failure rate has only dropped into the 75 to 80% range. This week's voter message to Trump and those like him was not lost on Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Indulge me as I kick a guy when he's down. If you've ever watched Fox News Channel or listened to the Don Imus Show, you'll recognize the name Richard Bo Deedle. The former New York City police detective also turned up in two Scorsese movies, Goodfellas and The Wolf of Wall Street. Somehow he was appointed to be President George H.W. Bush's National Crime Commissioner. Somehow. But that was probably before he weaponized his caustic dickishness to become a cable news shovel fighter. More recently, Deedle decided to hop aboard the Trump train by running for mayor of New York. In fact, you might recognize this human stain from a recent episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Check out this clip from the New York mayoral debate. We begin now with one-minute opening statements, beginning with Bo Deedle. First of all, I gotta say, go Yankees! I was mugged 500 times, I was stabbed, I was shot at, I was hospitalized 30 times. What'd you make last year? I made 1.8 million, okay? If I had my head in a potato field and I popped it out and listened to this mayor, I'd say I'd vote for him too. He hired that nincompoop Pompey, Ponty from Maine. The guy was guarding some mooses up there. Mr. Deedle, we're going to you first. Well, you know what? Hold on, I haven't asked the question yet. I'm just going to go to Rikers Island with the mayor. I'll lock up for two days, me and you, general population. This is just one of the issues in which our mayor has... What is that friggin' wall you put up around Gracie Mansion? What are we hiding? Is it the Berlin Wall? We're going to cut your mic off if you don't don't follow the rules. Well, let's follow the rules. My question is this is to the assembly member. What about me? Sorry, I get only one. Only one. Turn off off Deedle's mic. I cut off your mic, Mr. Deedle, because you keep interrupting. And we'll do it again if you continue to do that. You said that a, quote, Muslim guy who works for the state was to blame for your problems. You referred to your attorney as my, quote, Jewish lawyer. And you said that you and you said that you knew that you had lost your court battle when you were trying to run as a Democrat in this race because the African-American judge you said looked like Bill de Blasio's wife, Shirlane McRae. First of all, you're wrong on that, what you just said. All I said was Where, the judge was, was very familiar looking as the mayor's wife with two beautiful eyes and a smile, and they looked very similar. I never used the word African-American. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. No, just turn off the mic. Just turn off the mic. Thanks for watching. Please vote next month. Yeah, Deedle's obnoxiously vulgar behavior was certainly in keeping with his prior media performances, so it wasn't a stretch to harness his repellent cable news rage-gasms during the race. It was an ill-fated political calculation knowing that Donald Trump's equally repugnant garishness has resonated with angry middle-aged white men. Deedle figured he'd get in on that action now while Trump's orange coattails are still unfurled. Deedle calculated wrongly. We'll circle back to this in a second. One of my primary concerns in the Trump age is the notion of copycats. Already we've seen both national and state-level politicians attempting to squeeze through the Trump-shaped hole in the wall in order to capitalize on the president's mediocre support by adopting variations on Trump's public persona. Even though the rest of us know the real score, that Trump's poll numbers are slowly collapsing and that he's deeply unpopular with most voters— There are still too many Trumpers who believe that because he was able to ascend to the White House despite a rickety stack of scandals and horrendously unpresidential remarks, they too might be able to match the same degree of success elsewhere by borrowing his shtick. Only, for these copycats, Trump's remarks and misdeeds are seen as part of his appeal rather than a downside, 
and hence his victory exactly one year ago today. Indeed, one of the toughest challenges for the resistance in the coming years will be to rebottle the madness that Trump has unleashed into the world. It's his white trash impulsiveness, his disinterest in facts, his rejection of presidential normalcy, his breezy usage of lies and exaggerations, his pandering to the darkest instincts of his supporters. He should never have been handed the keys to the Oval Office. And these are just a few examples of the familiar Trump stink that's dominated the national conversation. It's not difficult to win supporters when feeding back their resentfulness and bigotry, their lust for tabloid reality show sensationalism, their who gives a relationship with decency and decorum, their cynicism about national leaders. No one's ever gone broke appealing to the knee-jerk defiant ignorance of the white trash cave dwellers of America. To wit, Deedle is apparently a multimillionaire. Again, it's not a difficult strategy to execute, but one that can't be rolled out ever again without further threatening the integrity of the Republic. This possibly temporary acceptance of villainy on a massive scale, polluting the White House, is chiefly what has to be exorcised from the world. But if it's allowed to continue and flourish, say hello to idiocracy, sooner rather than later. Until Trump came along, any single episode in his lengthy roster of trespasses would have doomed normal political candidates in normal political times. With the help of Russia, as well as a nationwide voter suppression campaign orchestrated by the establishment GOP and heaped on top of 20 years of Fox News and AM talk radio brainwashing, Trump squeaked out a narrow victory while losing the popular vote. However, the geniuses on cable news and elsewhere during the days and weeks after the election pinpointed a different springboard for Trump's dubious accomplishments, something about Rust Belt voters. In hindsight, we know it was much more complicated than that. But some Republicans still believe Trump's victory was completely organic. That brings us back to Bo Deedle. This barking carbuncle with his douchebag cufflinks thought he could ride what's left of the Trump wave into Gracie Mansion. Fortunately, the five boroughs shouted no way in the best way possible. New York City voters ought to be extra proud of themselves for mercilessly rejecting Deedle and with him Trumpism. And not by a few nail-biting votes either. Deedle landed in fourth place, accumulating a flaccid 10,592 votes compared to Mayor Bill de Blasio's 726,000 votes and 303,000 votes received by the official Republican opponent. In addition to signature Democratic victories in Virginia and New Jersey on Tuesday, the crushing of Deedle in New York City is perhaps one of the best indications that Americans have grown exhausted with the inchoate madness of Trumpism. So let this be a warning to copycats. Next stop for the Dems will be to send rhinestone cosplayer Roy Moore packing once and for all. Moore, and Trump by proxy, must be thoroughly embarrassed in Alabama's U.S. Senate runoff election next month. Given that it's red Alabama, Democratic challenger Doug Jones need only win in order to karate chop Trumpism in the throat. And then one batch of rejections will, fingers crossed, parlay into a trend that'll hopefully endure through the midterms and onward. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me there every Tuesday. Syria. Syria, of all places, has now signed on to the Paris Climate Accord. So there is now only one country in the world that has not signed the agreement to keep the planet from overheating. USA. USA. Syria, but not the U.S. And with that, the agreement was ratified this week at a conference in Germany. 
As emphasized here before, much of the U.S. is still hoping to meet or exceed the goals outlined in the Paris Accord, even if the Trump government refuses to get on board and continues its promotion of fossil fuels. The U.S. is second only to China in carbon dioxide emissions, but China now also leads the U.S. in solar production. The truth has a way of getting out even when the odds are stacked against it. Perhaps by accident, the Trump administration has released a report concluding that climate change is almost completely caused by man and that the situation is dire. Scientists were surprised the Trump administration let that get out since Trump has said climate change is a hoax created by China. Trump's energy and environment secretaries agree. Both are from oil states, and Trump's EPA director made a career out of suing the EPA. So that we're seeing this report is more surprising than the report itself. The National Climate Assessment assesses that the oceans could rise 8 feet by the year 2100. The government reports details damage that's already been or is being caused by climate change throughout the United States. But the White House says this report changes nothing. On one hand, we have Trump policy. On the other, we have the facts. With Trump repeatedly calling CNN fake news, Trump's Justice Department is suggesting that Time Warner sell off CNN if it wants its $85 billion merger with AT&T approved. Nice merger you've got there. Be a shame if anything happened to it. The only alternative is for AT&T to sell DirecTV. Either way, fake news CNN has to go, along with the other Turner broadcasting channels that Time Warner owns, because neither AT&T nor Time Warner likes either of these options, they together are demanding to know the basis for this suggestion, or threat, if you prefer. If the suggestion becomes a condition, the two companies would likely sue the Trump Justice Department. The companies have been hoping to become a behemoth provider of Internet, satellite TV, the entire Warner Brothers movie library, and popular cable channels including HBO and CNN. The CNN that Trump believes serves up fake news. It's chilling what Trump's doing in terms of a free press. Richard Painter, the former chief ethics lawyer for the George W. Bush White House, says, quote, use of antitrust power to punish CNN for exercise of First Amendment rights is an impeachable offense. AT&T has worked long and hard for this merger. It was one of the top donors to Trump's inauguration fund. Most of that fund never spent or explained. AT&T even hired Mike Pence's lobbying buddies to make this administration look more favorably on its long-planned marriage to Time Warner. And yet, this is where it stands. Sell CNN, or good luck with getting your merger approved. Senator injured in fight with neighbor. The storm of sexual harassment, showbiz news, and the fun stuff in the third and final segment, up next. It's music to your ears. When you pop in a new, comfortable pair of earbuds from tweakedaudio.com, especially the new Hegon Sport earbuds with silicone caps to help them stay in place, they're water-resistant with a tangle-free cord and a travel pouch. Now, like other Tweaked Audio products, the Hegon Sport Buds include an inline mic, a gold-plated plug, and, of course, extra gels. The Hegons are orange and gray, but Tweaked Audio's other earbuds come in a range of colors and materials, including wood. You can even get the buds in sets of two or three. And tweaked audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality, guaranteed. 
and the shipping is free anywhere in the world. And because everything does sound better on tweaked audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at tweakedaudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through tweakedaudio.com, all my other great sponsors, and through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. Kentucky Senator and ophthalmologist Rand Paul lives in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Paul has a bit of a reputation for disregarding rules, something about growing his pumpkins inside that gated community in Bowling Green. And Paul has reportedly not gotten along with his neighbor, a retired anesthesiologist named Rene Boucher, whose political views are staunchly the opposite of Senator Paul's. Friday, they reportedly had a dispute over a landscaping issue. At some point, Dr. Boucher tackled Dr. Paul from behind. Boucher admits he did that over what Boucher's lawyer says is a matter most people would regard as trivial. But neither side will say what the issue was, and the injuries sustained by the senator are more serious than anyone realized at first. Rand Paul is on the Senate's disabled list and in severe pain with five broken ribs and multiple bruises on his lungs. He could be out of commission for a very long time while his fellow Republicans hold just a slim majority already. Senator John McCain, already battling a vicious cancer, now has a torn Achilles tendon as a result of his chemotherapy. A new Ridley Scott movie about the 1970s kidnapping of J. Paul Getty III will be released on December 22nd. That means director Scott has just six weeks to shoot new scenes with Christopher Plummer as Getty's grandfather and edit them into the film, replacing the existing scenes that featured Kevin Spacey. It means Scott has only six weeks to work that magic and to change all of the promotional materials from posters to trailers. It's the only way the movie can keep its place of honor on closing night at the upcoming American Film Institute Film Festival. The producers of the Carol Burnett 50th Anniversary Show are busy this week editing out the parts that include Kevin Spacey. The producers of a Netflix movie about Gore Vidal have stopped putting the finishing touches on that movie because it stars the now-toxic Kevin Spacey. The cameras ground to a halt on the sixth and final season of Netflix's House of Cards when the news broke about the two-time Oscar winner. Spacey has been accused not only of attempting to molest a minor, but of more than a dozen other sexual harassment complaints, many of them from the set of House of Cards. The latest accusation is from the son of a former TV news anchor in Boston. Netflix announced it would not produce House of Cards anymore if Kevin Spacey was in it. So going forward, he won't be. Frank Underwood is dead. Netflix is giving the writers time to backtrack, time to write the two-time Oscar winner out of their scripts. Kevin Spacey is also taking some time, quoting his publicist, the time necessary to seek evaluation and treatment. Jeremy Piven, meanwhile, got bounced from Stephen Colbert's late show. CBS was forced to cancel a scheduled appearance by the star of one of its most promising new primetime series after Piven was accused of sexual harassment by two women. Aspiring actress Ariane Bellamar says Piven groped her on the set of Entourage and again at the Playboy Mansion when she was a Playboy model. The second accuser posted, I know what you did and attempted to do to me when I was far too young. CBS will now likely cancel more than just Piven's late show appearance.
Playboy Enterprises has shut down plans for a film biography of Hugh Hefner. The director was to have been Brett Ratner, who's now been accused of sexual harassment by at least six actresses, including Olivia Munn. And Oscar-winning producer Harvey Weinstein could soon be a wanted man for New York law enforcement. The NYPD says it's developing a strong criminal case against Weinstein for an alleged rape seven years ago. Prosecutors there say they'll have a case ready for a grand jury next week. And a new allegation this week has Weinstein hiring an army of spies, lawyers, and former Israeli intelligence officers to discredit his accusers and the reporters who pursued those stories. Weinstein is undergoing his therapy at a clinic just outside New York City. In Michigan, a congresswoman's chief of staff has been put on leave after charges he engaged in unwanted touching and unwelcome comments to other staffers. Kentucky's Speaker of the House has resigned as Speaker now that he's the target of a sexual harassment claim from a former staff member. Jeff Hoover says he will stay on as the state representative for the people of his district. A Kentucky newspaper says there was consensual sexting between Hoover and this woman, but that at some point the woman says she realized it was really sexual harassment. Hoover says he sent the text, but says he never touched the woman, says there was no physical relationship. And Hoover says, at no time did I engage in unwelcome or unwanted conduct of any kind. But Kentucky's governor, a fellow Republican, is having none of that. Anyone in state government who behaves this way, quoting the governor, should resign, period, adding, the people of Kentucky deserve better than the type of shenanigans that have gone on for far too long in this town. It's been a while since a movie scored big, but Thor opened with a $121 million weekend. The only other notable was A Bad Mom's Christmas in second place with $17 million. In Passings and Passages, Jimmy Fallon's mother passed at the age of just 68. Fallon canceled the taping of his Tonight Show last Friday after hearing the news, and this week's shows are reruns, allowing him time to be with his family. Patton Oswalt remarried over the weekend on the Jim Henson lot in Hollywood. In a brief Jewish ceremony witnessed by just a handful of friends, the comedian, writer, and actor married Meredith Salinger. They got engaged in July, which was just over a year after Oswald's wife, Michelle McNamara, died in her sleep. And after 12 years and two kids, Lisa Bonet officially married Game of Thrones icon Jason Momoa, who will soon star on the big screen as Aquaman. Fox has just renewed Seth MacFarlane's The Orville for a second season. And production's been suspended on season two of Westworld because one of the stars had a medical emergency. The name of the actor has not been revealed. It is also not yet known if the delay might postpone the season two premiere, which is set for next spring. From our Now You Know department, climate change has proven to be such a threat to coffee growers and therefore coffee drinkers that scientists are working to develop coffee plants prepared to withstand the warmer planet and the predatory insects that the warmer weather brings. At least seven hybrids have been developed, including the newest called Centro Americano, and they're working to save the coffee while others work to save the planet. Does anybody really know what time it is? Even with the justifiable complaints about jumping in and out of daylight savings time, it used to be a whole lot worse. Until LBJ took action in 1966, nobody in the U.S. had any idea of the actual time. 
not exaggerating. Driving from Moundsville, West Virginia to Steubenville, Ohio would take you through seven time zones back then. The Daylight Saving Bill, passed by Congress in 1918, had come apart at the seams with many businesses and local governments refusing to play along. And the laws varied wildly from state to state and town to town. Daylight Savings Time in Iowa began on a different day in 23 locations inside that state. Commuters drove in 5 p.m. traffic in Omaha, Nebraska, and arrived home in Council Bluffs, Iowa, an hour later, where it was just now 5 p.m. In some office buildings in the U.S., 5 p.m. came an hour earlier on one floor than it did on the other. When things had gotten just too crazy, President Lyndon Baines Johnson stepped in. It began with a committee, of course, the Committee for Time Uniformity. Ultimately, the Uniform Time Act of 1966 was signed into law, except in Hawaii, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands, and Arizona, unless you're a Navajo living on tribal lands. Otherwise, it's better than it used to be, somewhat. For the past 32 years, the FCC has had what's called the Lifeline Program. The idea was to make sure Americans at or near the poverty line had a telephone. Their phone bills have been shared by the rest of us as an item on our phone bills. It was President Obama who expanded the program to include the cell phone and Internet service that have become as basic to our needs as a landline was 32 years ago. But the Trump FCC is now looking to scale back that assistance. Trump's FCC commissioner has proposed capping that subsidy. The FCC won't make this change until next year and won't make it at all if enough people speak up during the upcoming public comment window. I'll keep you posted via Internet on your phone. Health news headlines. A new study at the Albany Medical Center suggests the combination of Motrin and Tylenol might be as effective as opioids against the pain from injuries including sprains and fractures. Motrin is the brand name for the generic ibuprofen. Tylenol is the brand name for generic acetaminophen. This discovery could be good news for the battle against an opioid epidemic. Health researchers at the University of Illinois say we could save $13 billion a year on health care costs if we served kids glasses of cold water with their school lunches. They say water could be a great help in fighting childhood obesity. Out damned spot. New research from the Cleveland Clinic warns that not treating a melanoma skin cancer for even a month can be deadly. Melanoma patients who go untreated for 90 days are far more likely to die. See a dermatologist regularly and sooner if you're not sure about that spot on your skin. IUDs, meanwhile, may prevent cancer. Researchers at USC Medical Center say the presence of a contraceptive IUD not only prevents pregnancy, but sets off a natural immune response to the HPV virus, the virus that causes nearly all cervical cancer. A study at the University of Texas Cancer Center in Houston has found that doing yoga helps improve function, stamina, and mental health in lung cancer patients. The study found it's also good for their caregivers. And a study out of India indicates that certain foods can relieve a lot of the suffering in people with rheumatoid arthritis. That's good news for those paying for expensive arthritis meds. Those foods include foods with a lot of fiber. Items on that list include olive oil, whole grains, vegetables, prunes, blueberries, and pomegranates, and the spices, turmeric, and ginger.
it is illegal in the state of Oregon for people under the age of 18 to have sex, even if both participants are minors. So one school district has launched a new policy requiring teachers to call the police or the state's human services department if they suspect a student is sexually active. Quoting a woman speaking for the Salem-Kaiser School District, it's criminal not to report it. The guidelines say teachers should even report on rumors, but not to blow the whistle just because a kid asks about birth control, unless they say it's because they're having sex. Critics say the new rule requiring teachers to call the police if they suspect underage sex will make kids avoid talking to teachers. Before Michigan State's football team fulfilled its destiny Saturday night, the local police posted a warning. Keep the celebrating under control, they tweeted. The East Lansing Police Department warned that those who didn't could wind up in jail where, quote, we've taped Stranger Things spoilers all over the walls. There were no reports of serious trouble. They were armed with guns and with donuts. No, the cops hadn't arrived yet. These were the robbers, armed robbers, complete with masks and gloves, taking over a Shipley's Donuts Monday in Houston. The one with the gun waved it at the cashier and demanded all the money, while the other guy confiscated everyone's cell phones to make sure the cops wouldn't be there anytime soon. And then the other guy hops over the counter and starts grabbing donuts and handing them out to everyone in the place. What's better than a gallon of ranch dressing? How about 1.3 gallons of ranch dressing? A website called Flavor Gallery is now selling a small keg of Hidden Valley Ranch Dressing. A year's supply in that keg, it says, assuming you eat a lot of ranch dressing. The listing says the keg is lined in a way that keeps both the FDA happy and the dressing fresh. Kegs of ranch dressing go on sale December 11th, just in time for the holidays. A gift that will literally keep on giving. And finally, is that a zucchini in your backyard or are you just trying to blow us all up? World War II ended more than 70 years ago, but unexploded bombs are still found throughout Germany. It's often a very serious matter. Two months ago, 65,000 people were evacuated from Frankfurt on the discovery of a one-and-a-half-ton bomb at a construction site. Last week, a man old enough to remember the Second World War called police to tell them he had found a WW2 bomb in his garden. Police arrived, but didn't bother to call in the bomb squad, since the object in the man's garden turned out to be a zucchini. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.